Welcome to Talk Lex, a podcast dedicated to common sense discussion of legal issues facing everyday people. Brought to you by Derazio Peterson. For more information, visit Deraziopeterson.com. Thanks for listening to Talk Lex. This is Scott Peterson. In the legal profession, words matter. Cases and legacies are often decided based upon the meaning of words. Attorneys like precision when it comes to language. The food industry, on the other hand, is much more ambiguous. Language is used to encourage consumers to buy certain foods, but what that language actually means isn't always clear and is often quite misleading. My guest on this episode is Eric Lewandowski. Eric is the owner of Slate River Farms, a growing family regenerative farm in Greenwich, New York, that he owns with his wife, Nellie, and runs with some help from his father and his two children. Eric, who's also a full-time geologist, is one of the hardest working people I know. He's a fourth generation farmer who has taken what he learned as a child and translated it into a modern, sustainable farm. In this episode, we start by talking about the importance of generational planning in family-owned businesses, including farming, and go on to discuss some of the most common misconceptions around the food that we eat and how that impacts us as the consumer. We also talk about the future of farming, the benefits of regenerative farming, and its environmental impact. I really enjoyed this conversation with Eric, and my hope is that this episode provides a bit of clarity for our listeners about the food that we eat and the often misleading language around it. And a quick note about what to expect with Talk Lex moving forward. Each week, we're going to release an episode. Many of these episodes will feature a discussion between Giovanna and I about a current legal topic, but we'll also continue featuring occasional interviews with a wide variety of people who've got interesting perspectives on legal issues that impact many of us. Just a quick request here. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe, share it with your friends, and leave us a review. Also, you can find us on Instagram at TalkLexPodcast. And on that note, thanks for listening, and please enjoy my interview with Eric Lewandowski. So Eric, you grew up on a farm. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what that was like and how that farm differed from what you're seeing today and what the farms kind of are today? So yeah, I grew up in central New York in the Finger Lakes region of New York State, which is a, a part of New York that is known for large farms, fantastic soil quality, and also beautiful lakes. I'm a fourth generation farmer, but my family is farmed on four different farms, which is somewhat unique. Most people have a better process on how they uh, multi-generational their farm. They keep the same property and they just bring new people and new generations in every year. So my grandfather sold his farm that he grew up on, uh, that my father grew up on in New Jersey and bought the farm in the Finger Lakes in the 70s. And that's where I grew up. And that farm was about 1,200 acres with about another 1,000 acres of rental ground. And it was, say, an average-sized farm to above-average-sized farm in that part of New York State. We grew mostly just commodity crops. The farming practices that my grandfather and father and uncle uh, kind of evolved with, evolved with agricultural advancements in the 70s and 80s. So by the time I was in high school, we were down to really just three crops, corn, soybeans, and some wheat. And the reason that that happened for us was it was a way that two people could run the farm without any, uh, you know, any hired labor. So that farm was, it wasn't something that I wanted to continue, but I knew I wanted to continue farming in some way. And then in 2014, 
there was a farming accident and my uncle was actually killed on the farm, which prompted a sale of that farm. And my father didn't want to stop farming. And I wanted to be engaged in, in the family tradition and be engaged in agriculture. So we purchased this property out in Greenwich and moved all the farm equipment and everything from back home out here. And we just sort of sat out here for about a year, just looking at things and trying to figure out how we were going to run this new piece of property that we bought. And what we decided was that we wanted to run an operation that was more sustainable in the long term. And we didn't really know what that meant initially, but we knew that it couldn't just be part of the big ag system. So in 2017, we, we bought two cows and two calves and uh, started uh, grazing animals in the pastures. And that's grown over the last few years to now we have about 30 cows and uh, we've expanded into chickens and pigs and egg-laying hens. So the operation, the spirit of the operation is we want to create a space that is in tune with nature is a space that we want to work in and also a farm that's that is going to be sustainable in the long run. So that's where we are. Our labor force is small because it's my father and myself and Nelly, my wife and uh, and our two kids. But running animals on a regenerative farm like we have is very labor intensive. It reduces the amount of other inputs that we need like fertilizer and tractors and things like that that are very expensive and costly on the environment. But it also, it's, it's a heavy lift for us to handle. Now, you mentioned farmers are hardworking and, and that is, it's interesting because for the longest time, a farm could survive if the farmer just worked hard enough. And over the last generation or so, that isn't really the case anymore. You need more than just grit and a cast iron will to keep an operation going. So we're busy out here, but it's a labor of love. Well, yeah, you know, you bring up a good point. A lot of what, what we see and do in our practice involves generational planning and transition and making sure that families and businesses are, are thinking about what happens from one generation to the next. And I suspect that back in the older days and earlier generations, there was less focus on thinking about a plan for what's this going to look like in 5, 10, 15 years, let alone beyond that. What's your experience in, in that when you came up? Was there ever discussion about what are subsequent generations going to do? Was there an expectation? And, and has that changed at all? Or is it, is it still the kind of thing where you're just, you're sort of operating on a, with, with some sense of a plan, but not really an idea of what it looks like down the road? The farmer friends that I grew up with, that their families were committed to the farms surviving and advancing and being nimble, adapting to what the current market is, and also taking some careful risks. Those families, their farms are still in business as family farms and, and doing well. It's the ones like I grew up on that either didn't have any plans for success succession or didn't want succession. So we were in this scenario, we were half of the family wanted succession, but the other half of the family didn't. So that sort of resulted in this like, well, we can't have a multi-gen, we can't take on another generation into this operation because, and I don't know how this is done in other family businesses, but in farming, generally 
the way succession works is if the outgoing generation doesn't get paid the full value of their equity in the business by the incoming generation. And um, the farms that have been committed to that, you know, the outgoing generation gets taken care of by maybe a salary or having a house and the kids are there to take care of them. They don't get the big payday from selling all the equipment and selling the land and, and then retiring to a comfy armchair somewhere. So that's a huge thing with succession with farms is, is what you're talking about is a succession planning. And there's some families that won't even talk about it. Yeah. I mean, that sort of reaffirms the need to think about those kind of things in advance. And you're not alone in the farming business. I mean, we see it in law practices, dental practices, any businesses where there's these multi-generational operations and, and inevitably some of the, some of the kids aren't, aren't on board with you know, it's a stressful and, thing and, to talk about, right? Like, it is, and nobody nobody ever wants to talk about it. But it's it's a scenario where, God forbid, something happens, like what happens in your family situation, uh, and you you can run into that as being a big problem, a big area of concern. Out of curiosity, what what's the current state of your two kids? Are they going to continue the family tradition, or do you think they're they're on their way to <laughs> different things? I don't know. I don't know. At this point, if if I were a betting man, I'd say like it'll probably sunset with me. So my kids, for them, my perspective is that like when I was their age, 15 and 13, I didn't want to have anything to do with the farm. It was too much work. Uh, You could never go on vacation. There's not a lot of money to be made. And I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But there's a strategy that a lot of farmers take is like, let the kids go out and just do what they want to do. Kind of like the Amish do with their uh, Rumspringer or whatever that's called. And at some point, they may come back and want to engage in it. And that's, I mean, that's one of my motivations, one of Nellie's motivations is to, if they do want to have a farm to run, we want this to be there for them. I think that's also, a, I think that's something that as a, someone who owns a family business now, I see a very similar <laughs> scenario yeah, okay. playing out with my kids, where what we do is boring and not exciting to them. And they want to go, God only knows at this point, you know, go ski in Colorado for two years or whatever. Sure, yeah, but, you can get paid for that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think that the philosophy of letting them go back and maybe they come home at some point, to that's always an option. Then we have the same philosophy about we want to have something there for them. And uh, let's shift gears for a second. So in our world, in, in the legal world, language is important, right? And cases are won and lost by specific words. <laughs> you and I have, we've worked out together many times over the year. We're both really into health and fitness and nutrition. And so I'm a consumer and I'm someone who generally likes to be conscious of the food that I'm eating. And before I was lucky enough to have you guys come along where I can get quality stuff, I was like everyone else who's trying to be thoughtful about the food that I eat. And I would go to the store and I would see all these designations on food. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about those because we're talking about legal issues, but when you're talking about legal issues, there's also regulations and rules. And in the food world, it seems to me that some of the rules and the wording and the language around food is in a gray area at best. So I go to the store and I want to buy some organic meat. What, what does that mean? And what does that mean to you as a farmer? Well, if it's, if it's got the USDA organic label on it, then it's met the, the minimum standards for USDA organic, which is, as you know, I'm sure, is a little bit of, uh, uh, there's, there's rules and regulations that go along with that, that there are certain 
pesticides that they're not allowed to use and there's certain treatment, ethical treatment um, rules, but those are, they're all really, really loose and they're written in a way that allows the big farms to sort of keep doing what they were doing before um, with some minor tweaks to, you know, to, to fit the new rules. Um, I always get suspicious of food labels, um, particularly ones that you can't back up with things. You see things on, on food labels like all natural or, you know, humane or um, uh, no antibiotics or cage-free for eggs. Like all, and many of those things that are on the, the, the label are claims that have, there's no way you can validate those claims. Uh, there's no way that, there's no um, uh, part, there's no body that's overseeing them. Organic is one that certainly is overseen and there's strict rules about it, but the rules aren't as, you know, um, touchy-feely as, um, as you would think they would be. So uh, if, you, if you want to designate something organic, is somebody overseeing, are they, are they physically coming to look at what you're producing or is it like a self uh, attestation that, you know, my food is organic and you're, you're, you know, you're allowing that someone could come and do an inspection at some point. How does that, how does that work? The organic rules do, uh, include a, uh, an audit. Um, I believe it's an annual audit of your facility. Um, I don't know if they go through all of the records of what you've bought. And I mean, the other thing is there's a lot of farms that are sort of two-faced where they they have a USDA organic side to them and then they also have the regular conventional side. So you could easily see how things could get um, manipulated. Not that I'm suggesting that all organic is is just, you know, a ball of hooey, but um, it, it, it's, um, it gets down to if you don't, you know, if, if you don't know the farmer and trust the farmer, then the rule doesn't really mean anything because there's a lot of room for, there's a lot of room for tomfoolery inside of that, um, that, that label. Yeah. And so, I mean, organic might not even have been the best example because that is actually from, from what I understand from the way you're describing it, that's probably the, it sounds like the most sort of firm or well-established of the, of the language. I'm thinking you, you go to the store and you see grass fed beef or mm -hmm. free range chicken or free range eggs, or as you said, antibiotic free or hormone free. But is there any regulation whatsoever uh, over, over you as someone who produces these, these types of products? Many of them have no oversight and, and no, um, there's, there's no rules around what the claims mean. And there are some like, oh, uh, there's one, it's a, I believe it's the American Grass-Fed Association, and they, they verify that the, the beef has been grass-fed, but they don't have an audit. So they collect the fee from the farmer, and the farmer self-certifies that, you know, this is what I do, and yada-da-da-da uh, with, with the cows, but there's no third party that comes out to inspect the farm and, you know, um, you know look, at the, look at the feed pile and, 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 and document what's going on. Um, the other thing about organic that, you know, just before we move too far on from that, one of the things that always baffles me about organic is that um, is fertilizer. So fertilizer, uh, like 
you, anyone who has a garden, you know that if um, you need to amend the soil to keep, um, to keep the soil healthy, because if you're growing a bunch of, you know, say tomatoes, every year those tomatoes are taking stuff out of the ground and you need to, um, you need to, you know, put bone meal or uh, fish fertilizer or something in the, in the soil. Uh, so organic will not allow for uh, chemical fertilizers like uh, chemical-based nitrogen and things like that. So uh, how do they get their fertilizer? Well, there's the main way that the organic farms get their fertilizer is from conventional manure lagoons. Hmm. So the, the, con- the big conventional farms have their animals all concentrated under one roof and all that manure just pools up and goes out the back door into a giant pond that they call a lagoon and it's liquid. Um, and that gets pumped and sprayed on the fields as fertilizer. And it's a super um, nutrient rich fertilizer. Um, so that's allowed conventional manure is allowed in organic farming. And the other thing that's interesting is, you know, you talk to dairy farmers and they, they say, you know, what goes into the manure lagoon it's everything, everything goes in the manure lagoon. You know, if you, not that, not that people are like intentionally dumping things down, down the lagoon, but so that's the biggest sort of um, red flag for me with USDA organic is that, is that the, the main source of nutrients for the crop is conventional fertilizer. And they have to do that because it's just, there's, I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago about how we, we have to, we, fertilizer has to come from somewhere and the most efficient and the most effective way to get fertilizer is from, is from animals. If not, you're manufacturing it in a chemical plant or mining it out of the ground, which is a, you know, a non-renewable resource. So um, they had to allow for that, for the organic rules to pass and for it to get as big as it is now. But, but you know, in the, in the idea of you are what you eat, uh, if, we're, if, we're eating, if we're eating products uh, that are labeled as, you know, organic, but, but are being fed from food, which is, is not coming from anywhere near organic, then by extension, we aren't really eating anything that's organic. Isn't that kind of yeah, the Yeah, I think you idea? just drew the... <laughs> Yeah. And, and so does that, and does the same hold true with, you know, with something like grass fed beef? I mean, is it, if you, if you're, if you're buying beef because you think that it's got this grass fed profile and maybe we should even, well, maybe, maybe we'll stop there and you can explain the difference between, you know, grass fed versus grain fed when it comes to meat, because grass fed beef is obviously becoming a much more, you know, prevalent, uh, thing on the market. So what, what's the difference between the two? Uh, well, the, the the main difference is how it's raised. Um, all beef is grass fed uh, for probably eighty percent of its life. So cows are born on a pasture somewhere, and they spend the first you know nine ten months just grazing around the pasture, gaining weight on grass. And then when they reach almost maturity, say maybe a thousand pounds, and I don't know what the weight the weight is that they round them up, but they round up these yearling calves. And then from there, they go to a feedlot where they're very like scientifically fed rations to fatten them up, uh, to take them from, you know, say a thousand pounds up to 12 or 1300 pounds as quickly as possible. And that's where the, um, you know, the marbling of the steaks and things like that really, um, really happen is in the feedlot. And those feedlots are, you know, there's some pretty rough places. Um, With grass-fed, 
that they never go to the feedlot. The idea is that they stay on the farm uh, and they um, they eat pasture grasses and in the wintertime, if grass isn't available, they eat hay. And um, it takes longer to raise um, a grass-fed cow than it does a grain-fed. For us, we're around 18 or 20 months in that ballpark, uh, which is on the better side of average. There's some that are, you know, 30 months or so, and it starts getting really expensive to uh, keep a cow around for that long. As far as like health-wise goes, you know, people eat for a few different reasons. Like the main reason people eat is just because we have to. But then you get into all these like nuanced reasons of like, you know, there's health, there's, you know, cultural or ethical uh, or cultural or family reasons. There's, you know, the environment. And then there's ethical reasons and under ethical reasons. You can have like the, the animal welfare, the, you know, the, you know, workers, how the workers are being treated. So when you start to say like, what are the benefits of grass-fed beef versus grain-fed? There's there's a lot of them um, from health-wise. The health panel of a grass-fed um, from grass-fed beef is um, much more nutrient dense. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm I'm going to be transparent as much as transparent as, as I know because this is as much as I know about it. It's not ridiculously healthier than grain-fed beef, but it certainly is healthier. The, the, the rubber really hits the road with grass-fed versus grain-fed when you look at the uh, environmental and the ethical uh, impact of that practice is really, you know, so it's, it's sort of like taking everything into account um, in, in the selection of the grass-fed beef over the grain-fed. Uh, most people would probably say, well, grain-fed tastes better, it's more tender, and, um, and in some cases that would be true, because there's more control on how grain-fed beef is raised. Uh, Grass-fed, there's a wide spectrum of, there's farms that are, you know, just sort of, you know, eyeballing and, you know, seeing if the animal looks like it's ready to go off to this, uh, to the slaughterhouse and, and, and not really putting a lot of thought into how they're raising it. And then there's farms that we're striving to be, which is folks that are really calculated moving their animals through the pastures to make sure that they're getting the optimal amount of grasses in at, the, at you know, at all times. And they're also working to sequester carbon. We raise grass-fed beef here. One of the things we're most proud of is the, um, the environmental impact that we have. You read a, a great newsletter um, about, you know, some of the things that we're discussing here and about, you know, the, the impact of what you do. And one of the uh, topics that I really enjoyed reading about was the the conversation you had about you know sort of what the world would look like if everyone stopped eating meat. Um, and you know, as we're recording this in you know March of 2021, there's this huge movement towards these plant-based alternatives, so Beyond Meat and and various other products that obviously have a future in, in some capacity. But your perspective on it is an interesting one, uh, given what you do. So what? What would that world look like from a an environmental perspective, and what benefits are there for continuing to raise up farms like yours that are, you know, allowing the sort of production that that yours is? Well, I I I love talking about you know what would happen if we all woke up tomorrow morning and decided to be a vegetarian, and and if everybody sort of played along with that, 
how, where, where it would go. And, and the reality is we would, we'd have to deal with all the animals and stuff like that, but just pretend that that's, you know, we just figure that out. And over time, like we were talking about, we would run out of fertility in the soil if we weren't using chemical fertilizers to replace what the plants take away. The other thing is, you know, half of the soil that's in the United States that's available for farming isn't suitable for crops, half of it. So half of the farmland in the United States is pasture ground. Is that, when you say pasture ground, what do you mean? So it's either too hilly or too wet or um, too rugged to drive a tractor and a corn planter over. So that ground would essentially be useless in this, in this vegan world because if we weren't using ruminant animals in particular to, uh, to keep the ground maintained, uh, that would just overgrow. Uh, and maybe some people would be fine with that. But we would be reliant on these big seed and chemical companies to support our food system. You know, the, the, the Monsantos of the world and Dow Chemical that, so, you know, that like vegetarians aren't just like eating kale. You know, like that, I'm sure there are some that, that, and I know there are some friends with, with, uh, with some vegetarians that take their diet very seriously. But the, the reality is there's a lot of processed foods, heavily processed foods that are, you know, vegan friendly or, or whatever. So we would end up um, eating a lot more processed foods. Um, these meat alternatives, um, that are, I mean, one of the reasons why we're seeing it so much is because they're cheap to make. You know, they say they're made with, it's interesting, they say they're made with pea protein. Some of them are made with soybeans, some are made with peas. But when, you, when they say pea, they don't really mean like the green pea that, you know, you eat in your fettuccine Alfredo. The manipulation, just that, the, the, it is brilliant, right? To say, oh, it's pea protein. It's, well, I mean, that goes to the, the, the conversation that we were having earlier, which is, you know, like I said, I mean, we have literally won and occasionally lost cases where over, over language, right? And specific terms and contracts are, are, are won and lost all the time. Uh, and so there's this gray grayness to the whole thing that, you know, I mean, it's funny you say pea protein because I actually just literally had a, a, a shake today after my workout that had pea protein in it. <laughs> and, and I was, I was actually picturing like, you know, peas, green peas that you get and that I make in pasta or something. In pasta. Maybe that's, maybe it would, maybe that's what was in, in that protein. I mean, I'm not so confident anymore. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, you know, you were talking and I, I may have sidetracked it a little bit about of overall environmental benefit to this type of grazing that that you guys do at, at your farm, and you're not alone in it, obviously. Um, talk about that, and and maybe you talk about that in the context of what what you like to call, and I know you don't like labels, but what you like to call rotational grazing, regenerative farming, which is another hot topic or of the day. When when I think about it, sometimes like um, we used to work out together. Hopefully, sometime we'll be able to again, um, but. <laughs> Like taking care of your body. If, if you don't take care of your body, you know, you're just going to get maligned with all sorts of diseases. But if you 
if you go to the gym and you don't really have a plan, but you go to the gym and you sort of flail around and wander around in the gym and you're consistent with it, um, you'll get sort of in shape, you know, a little bit. But if you go to the gym with a plan, a long-term plan, say, this is like my plan over the next couple of years of how I'm going to get to, you know, do this pull-up or do whatever, you're going to have a program that you're going to stick to. And over time, you're going to really reach your maximum. And we look at our pastures sort of the same way. If we didn't graze any animals, our pastures would grow up with brush and brambles and they'd be worthless. And what a lot of people do is they just sort of turn their cows out into the pasture and just let, they let them roam around and they eat where they want to eat. And the pasture stays sort of maintained, but it's, you know, some areas are a little overgrazed and some areas are undergrazed, but it's, it's not hitting its potential. What we're trying to do is that long-term plan where we want, we want to reach our, our pastures to reach their optimal. So by doing that, we're going to allow our cows to graze only on a very small portion of the pasture and move them out of there uh, quickly. So multiple times a day, sometimes we'll move our cows into new areas of the pasture. And what that does is one, cows um, will eat, they're like kids, they'll eat dessert first if, if given the option. So they're gonna go to the areas that have the best stuff. And then they're gonna avoid the areas that aren't as good. So if we concentrate them in a small area, they'll end up eating almost everything. And then they'll also, because there's a lot of density of the animals, they'll trample a lot. And that trampling is critical because the trampling smashes the grass, the dead, the plants down, and those plants will start to decay. And also when they're in there, they're, they're pooping, they're peeing, so they're spreading their manure. Then later on in the day, it's time to move the cows we move them. They see us coming. They, knew what, they know what's going to happen. So they get excited to move. They're going to eat again. So we're kind of driving the progress of the cow's gains by moving them, getting them into a new area. They want to check stuff out. They want to eat. And then that, that area that they were just in gets a rest. It might get two months or more of a rest before the cows get back to that area. So it gets intense work and then a rest period so it can recover and be ready to go the next time. So that, that cycle is, is spreading their manure, is not concentrating the manure in one spot, it's trampling the, uh, the underbrush and turning that into new soil. So that's where the regeneration comes from, that we're actually building the soil on the farm versus just sort of aimlessly letting the cows wander around. What would be the, the alternative if you weren't going to rotate? Would you, you allow the cows to just graze on one, one field or haphazardly? What would that do to the ground and what would that do for the environmental piece of this? Well, what it would do is um, the, in, a, in a pasture scenario, the, the cows would eat all the good stuff right away. They'd browse over the whole, say it's a 50 acre pasture. They would browse over the whole thing and they would eat it all down. And then the, the, the things like goldenrod and um, even um, thistle, spiky stuff, they won't eat that once it gets you know, tall. They'll eat it when it's short. But they'll, those plants, those undesirable plants, will, they'll proliferate. And the good grasses 
will just, they'll keep getting eaten and eaten. They'll take more and more bites off of it until it gets, they're basically, they're eating the roots. And then when the soil doesn't have the root mass in it, the soil became, becomes very susceptible to erosion and also compaction from the cows constantly walking over the same areas all the time. And that compaction reduces the potential for organic material in the soil. It also reduces the amount of uh, water holding capacity. So um, by moving the cows and creating this, um, this lush pasture, it leaves behind a sponge for carbon, for rainfall. So all that rainfall isn't just running into the ditch and getting down into the, into the rivers and streams. A cow's footprint will hold some water behind in soft soil. From the grazer's perspective, if we're trying to raise meat, we can graze more cows on the same number of acres if we're doing it in this manner. So there's a benefit to us as the folks who are trying to sell the beef off of these pastures that we can raise more cows per acre uh, if we're moving them around. But like getting back to the very beginning, it takes a lot of labor to go and move the cows um, and, and water. I mean, a cow will drink 25 gallons of water a day. So it's, it's, it's just, every, it, it, it all um, uh, gets back to these, these inputs of labor and time and how much are we willing to put into it? You, you identified, I think, three or four reasons earlier why buying grass-fed makes a difference, right? And, and health is, is, is one of them, but it, it may not be the most important one. Uh, you know, these other, these other issues that you talked about might actually be much more critical to sort of the long-term benefits to society. Um, but how do you explain it for somebody who says, we can't do this at scale? What, can we do this for everyone? Can everyone eat grass-fed, small farm raised beef? Is that, is that a realistic possibility? Or is it, is it never going to be the case that, you know, you can get a McDonald's grass-fed hamburger? For for ninety nine cents or whatever it is, you know, what's probably be imported from New Zealand or something. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I think if you went back into the nineteen sixties and and told my father, you know, a teenager growing up on a farm in New Jersey, that hey, you and your brother, by the time you're in your early sixties, are going to be able to farm two thousand acres, just the two of you, he would have told you you're crazy, and that's what they did. They did that. So one of the reasons that that happened was because of technological advancements, mechanical advancements, and also, I would argue, um, the ignorance of the environment and food worker um, rights. You know, you talk about COVID in the slaughtering plants, like half the people in these slaughter facilities got COVID because they work they work like piranhas on, uh, on, on, on animal carcasses. So I think that it's possible, but what I would like to see is the, the university level research of how to advance the efficiency of the methods of the types of farming that we do to make it easier without sacrificing the environment and the animal welfare. And so if you give a group of engineers a problem and you say, okay, you got to stay within these bounds, over time, they'll figure out how to do it. But our, our type of farming does not get university-funded research like corn and soybean and dairy. 
It just doesn't happen. Most of the advancements that we use for our, like we wouldn't be able to rotational graze without advanced electric fencing. It, it, there's no way it would be possible, you know. But these are, these are things that came out of Australia and New Zealand. We're not doing that research here in the United States. So I think that's one way that it could advance. What's the reason that it's coming out of New Zealand and Australia? Do they put more of an emphasis on beef and, and you know, the U.S. just emphasizes soy and corn? And, uh, and, and if so, what's, what's, what's the reason for that? Is it a product of the numbers and the lobbying and the Monsantos of the world? Or what, what's the I don't, I don't know exactly why. I mean, New Zealand is known and has been known for grass-fed meat for a long time. Um, also, um, um, there's parts of South America that in the same boat, um, Argentina, uh, known for grass-fed, and there's a lot of research coming out of there. And I don't know what the political climate is down there as to why that's happened. I'm pretty sure up here in the United States, we don't do it because these big companies like, you know, the American Soybean Growers Association have, you know, they, they want their research done. And the other thing is, you know, John Deere doesn't stand to make much off of uh, rotational grazing. Where do you see the future headed in terms of the ability to scale regenerative and rotational farms uh, based on, you know, increasing technology? We're never going to make water easier to get to animals. You know, the fencing and water are, are, are the, some of the biggest hurdles with, with grazing animals. I think there's probably some advancements that could be made in how water systems work. I think fencing, for sure. I, 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 there's, there's things that could happen. And, you know, we don't, as farmers, we don't have time to do that. I tell my kids all the time, like, if you want to go, you know, you want to research this and get your, your PhD as a as a as an ag researcher there's probably an opportunity for it at some point because like you said before we're not the only ones doing this there's more and more people entering in to this type of farming all the time so I, I think it's it's only going to grow the other side of of things the big farms are still going to get bigger and we'll have you know, more mechanization and uh, more automation, which will just drive more and more small farms out of the, you know, out of the farming business, which for, for me as a small farmer, who we would like to grow and acquire some more land, it's very difficult to buy the neighbor's two or 300 acre parcel of ground when we're competing against the dairy farmer down the road that is already farming 8,000 acres that can easily not easily, but more easily than us, um, uh, cost justify that purchase. So they can, you know, they can drive the price of ground up. There are a lot of negatives associated with beef and, and, and animal production. We're talking about, uh, you know, labor standards, uh, you know, animal cruelty and, and, and the environmental impact. Uh, are, those, are those issues essentially non-existent in the small farm world, or are they improved by, by doing things the way that you do them? Uh, you know, what are the big differences and, 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 and how are, how are you guys doing things in a way that, you know, eliminates a lot of those concerns from, you know, from people's minds? Well, I don't know if it's 
absent totally in small farms. There's plenty of small farms out there that are probably, you know, mistreat animals just as, and there's, there's plenty of big farms out there that go to great lengths to take care of their animals. Um, but generally speaking, the animals that are in the big system don't have it as they don't have it as nature would have intended, attended it for them. Um, for us, we, we take the, the, care and the health of our animals, probably, um, we probably put too much emphasis on it. It's probably one of the things that, um, that, that, uh, you know, people would look at our business and say, what, what are you guys doing? Um, but, um, we, you know, you decide to do things and, and there was, this is something that we decided to do that if we're going to raise animals and we're, you know, we're going to kill them and eat them and sell them to our, our, our customers that we want to know, that, that we've done everything that we can to make sure that animal had the life that nature intended it to have. Um, um, so for us, you know, especially Nellie, she really had to take stock of it for the first, you know, year or so. It's like, can we really, can we, we really do this? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a reasonable, I think, uh, thing to think about. Uh, and it, it seems that, you know, at a large scale, you know, you're operating in a completely different world and, and, and your business does not have concern over, over the ethics of it, I would assume. But you mentioned, you know, you mentioned some large farms are doing it right, but how this goes back to what I said right out of the gate, which is, again, like in our world, things are, you know, their language is clear or it should be. Uh, mm. How is a consumer supposed to know who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong? And I'll use it as, as an example. Uh, and, and I'm not going to ask you to point fingers at anyone directly, but, you know, Pete and Jerry's eggs, right? You know, there's, mm. a, there's a label that I see at the grocery store that I think, oh, well, this is this has the right, the right words on it. And, you know, uh, to me, this, this looks like something, or to an average consumer, this looks like something that's healthy and done right. I don't know if it is or it isn't, but what advice or suggestions do you have for the average person looking to get their meat from a source that's not abusing its labor, not, you know, abusing its animals and, and doing things the right way? It's, it's, it's a time commitment. It really is because we're, as a civilization, we're so disconnected from the farm. You know, at this point, most, most people are two generations away from having a, a farm in their family. So, um, you know, how do you know? It's hard. It is. And, and if you're one to take on the task of really digging into it, you'll be able to figure it out. I mean, if you look at that Pete and Jerry's egg carton and you see, all right, it's, certified humane. You know, what does that mean? You know, look up that label and see what is, what do they allow? What do they not allow? Um, I'm pretty sure Pete and Jerry's allows debeaking their, uh, their hens, um, at through their certified humane, uh, ruling. And some people are okay with that. Some people aren't, um, we wouldn't be. Um, so, it's, it's a time commitment. And a lot of people just throw up their hands and say, screw it. It's just, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to buy the thing that I think is, you know, I, I can't spend so much time thinking about this. I got to pick my kids up from dance class. I've got to, you know, I'm, I'm just going to buy the thing. And, uh, and, you know, the food companies take advantage of that. Um, and, and are you seeing any movement or, uh, 
on the part of the smaller farms or the farms that are doing it right to try to change the narrative on this or to try to make it easier for the consumer to understand it? You know, where's, what, what's the state of things with that? Obviously you're going up against, you know, the Purdue's of the world who mm-hmm. have mass market control and, and, uh, but, but what, what's, what is it like on the ground for, for small and local farms? Well, I, I'll, I'll credit Nelly with, um, with, several good things. Um, one in particular is uh, seeking out a certification for the farm of uh, animal welfare approved, which is a certification that's uh, provided by a greener world. And a greener world, you don't see a greener world certification in many stores because it, because it is by far the highest standard in animal welfare um, and transparency. Uh, so a lot of farms just can't meet the standards, um, but they have a, um, they prepared like this 10 page <clears throat> PDF of all these food labels out there and, and what do they mean and what are they trying to imply, but maybe they don't really mean that. To answer your question, we need help as farmers by organizations like that, that are willing, like that, that have a, they've got the inertia behind them to help educate the consumer um, in a way that is, you know, just really getting the truth out there. So if someone does really want to spend the time to know what all these labels mean, they, um, they can. I, I will say that the Times, a couple of years ago, did an article. Um, they went into all of the common animal welfare approved labels, and they said, what does this really mean? And some of them are surprising, like animal welfare approved um, or certified humane pork. The, the pig is allowed the size of a baby's crib for its, its space to live its entire life. And you think that is that's really certified humane? That's, but <clears throat> I guess that's more space than what if it wasn't certified. There are resources out there. <clears throat> um, and I think that's, that's been super helpful for us to just see like why, what we're comparing ourselves to when we look at like, you know, when we had, we had pigs and you know, you look at the industry standard for humane is something like a thousand square feet per, uh, per pig. And I think we had 15 pigs on five acres of, of ground. And that, that was the right amount. But you, as a farmer, you know, you know, if, if the animal's getting its, uh, its best treatment. Yeah. The lobbying is obviously being done to the FDA and these other organizations by massive institutions and massive corporations. And it's, it's a fight that's, I'm sure, very challenging. I just, I think about when, you know, the USDA issued the food pyramid guidelines and, uh, and when they're, you know, when Michelle Obama, to her credit, was trying to get healthier lunches in schools and this whole discussion about, I think it was, it was, if it was my plate or whatever the the term was, where, The, the lobbying eventually got pizza classified as a vegetable because there was yeah. uh, something to do with the cheese. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's challenging. And, you know, the language is not precise and it's ambiguous, probably intentionally, you know, on the legal side. Uh, and so I, I think the, the answer probably is to know, know, know your farmer that you're buying your food from. But that's easier said than done. And, and I've heard yeah. you talk before about and I've heard the question asked, it's, it's easy for me who knows a farmer personally and who can go to a farmer's market, but how do we, 
get people who don't have the access to this type of food? How do we educate them? And I, I don't know if there's an answer to that, but you're, I, I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. I think there's, yeah, there's work that's being done in that regard. Um, it's tough to, I mean, in general, people don't have access to um, healthy food because they don't have the money for it. Like that's really like the access um, restriction is money. And I think it's beyond the scope of a farmer's responsibility to, uh, to, you know, to, to solve that, that problem. But um, I think, you know, culturally, we do have a problem with um, just being accustomed to things being cheap, um, particularly food. Uh, we're, you know, we're all accustomed to, you know, to, to not paying the, the, the true cost of food. Um, and when, when you buy something from us, uh, I have confidence that we've calculated everything into the price of the food, including, you know, the environment uh, and the health of the, uh, the people working uh, with, the, with the animals and the, even the people at the slaughter facility. I mean, for us, getting animals uh, processed is, is, is expensive because we don't go to the Tyson plant, you know, that, that, that processes 2,000 animals a day. Um, we go to Locust Grove Smokehouse in Argyle, and they might process 20 a week. Um, but for us, it's worth it. I think about that a lot. Like, how do we, how do we get our stuff in everybody's um, grocery cart? And um, it's, a, it's kind of a Sisyphean effort because it's just, you know, there's the new iPhone that came out, and there's all this stuff that we're competing against for the, you know, for the for the for the dollars. Um, and ultimately, it, it comes down to the choice of the consumer. We have this conversation with folks all the time. You know, we we're, we're trying to tell people of the, you know, convince them of the importance of putting an estate plan together when they have children, but it's priorities. And and all well, you it's like I've talked about this recently about vanity. There's a vanity problem. You know, and, and, you know, uh, a will, right. A will doesn't really do much for your, you know, you can't post about that on, on TikTok. (laughs) No, no, you can't. Uh, But but it will buy you more peace of mind uh, (laughs) as will probably eating a high quality meal than, you know, posting a picture. I'll save that rant for, for another day. I mean, I think, I think when it comes to this, you said it best in one of your, um, one of your newsletters, which was uh, essentially you said, look, I'm, I'm somebody who's going to go and have a burger at, you know, a local brewery or have a burrito or carnitas at Chipotle because they're good. But when I do it, I'm going to be conscious of it and I'm going to understand right. I'm making the decision. Uh, and there's, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding what that means. And I think that's probably the best you can hope for, for anyone who has the option is, is to be somewhat conscious of the decisions they're making on it. Um, We're fortunate now because we have that option with food. Yeah. That is, you know, when I talk about like the iPhone, we can't, you can't buy an iPhone that was made ethically. No. You can't do it. It's, and you can't buy one that was made in the United States. It's impossible. So in a way, I feel like, all right, we're just going to yield to the technology and we're going to support Apple and Dell and all these companies because, you know, there's no other options. But at least with food, we still have that option. You know, we still do have the option. Yeah, you you look you you know that's a, that's a, a probably a point for <laughs> you know a much much longer discussion which is every everything's a trade off and I may buy you know uh beef from you knowing that it's ethically raised and it's you know it's the animals are treated humanely and everybody, but at the same time it's like you said I own stock or I 
I, you know, I, I own products from companies that are, have unbelievably terrible labor, labor practices. And, and it's, I don't know that, you know, anyone is living perfectly and that's in that regard, but it's a nuanced world. I mean, it, it really, it's, it's very nuanced. And, and I suppose that's where the, (laughs) you know, maybe that's where the language issue comes in. Maybe it's all just nuance and, you know, (laughs) uh, but your job is to make it not right. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, you mentioned something before, though, which which brought up you know, an interesting topic, I think, which is the the ability of these large farms to mass produce product. And my understanding from having heard you talk about this before is is that COVID has sort of changed the landscape, at least temporarily, a little bit, uh, because a lot of these big production facilities were forced to shut down. And I remember back in back in the summertime, I think, or the spring this you'd go to the grocery store and there was no meat <laughs> there was like That's you know amazing. among other things i mean you could you have you couldn't get four or nine for like a year but uh how did how did that impact you and you know your facilities and your your staff and and your business it, it, it was it was a shot in the arm for us surprisingly we were worried at first but um with the meat processing plant shutdowns and it wasn't the 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 grocery stores didn't have meat in them, not because there wasn't meat available. It was because there weren't processing plants to, you know, take the live animals and, and turn them into steaks and burgers and things like that. So um, with those shutdowns, that um, that drove a lot of traffic to us. Um, and we were fortunately able to pick up a bunch of new customers, uh, which was fantastic. Um, Nellie's quickly, Nellie was going to... Um, a couple of different farmers markets at the time. And um, we realized like, we didn't know what's going to go on with this pandemic. They're saying like 10% of the population is going to die. Like we do not, we don't want to go to a, you know, have you standing at a farmer's market and plus the farmer's market shut, shut down. So she quickly set up a website with a, um, you know, with a, a shopping cart feature. So we were able to start, you know, shipping locally and doing local deliveries. And uh, it's been a great shift for the business. Um, so there's that, you know, silver lining on the COVID story for us. Um, you know, the, the, the bigger farms, they definitely got beat up. You know, they were, um, they were just a victim of this system that required people to be in the plants. Do you think that this represents a, a longer term shift in the way people uh, are buying their food? Or do you think it's a, a blip on the radar in that as soon as the, you know, the, the bigger mass produced stuff gets produced again and gets more widely available, which it is again now. Uh, do you think people default back to that? I think it's a little of both. I mean, I would say we kept half the customers that we picked up, um, which is fantastic. Um, our job as, um, you know, as, as farmers and, re- and retailers of meat is to just, you know, keep reminding them of, you know, why we're different and that we appreciate them as customers. Um, and for them to tell their friends and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I mean, like you said, the stores are back full of meat. I think chest freezers and stuff like that are, are back in stock at the hardware store. So, you know, some people shifted how they buy and, and, and keep food, but most people, you know, we just regress back to the norm, right? Yeah, we do. Uh, for, better, for better or worse. In, in our world, we, a lot of times you kind of see big companies uh, using their their resources and their their power uh, and you know their legal strength to trump out 
small competition. Um, do you do you see any of that in your business, or do 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 the big farms for the most part leave you guys alone? What's what's the state of affairs there? I they don't pay much attention to us. Yeah. Um, uh, fortunately, um, I don't think we're like a um, a threat in in any way. You know, it's it's interesting. We just had a um, um, little side story here. We just there's there's a local uh, like farm supply store that that we buy stuff from feed and farm you know tools and parts and stuff and um, they uh, the, it's been in the same family's ownership for like hundred years or something like that. And, and, um, it was just sold like last week. So the new owner called me and, 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 and just said, Hey, you know, I hope we can keep doing business together. And, and we're a small account for this, 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 uh, place. But I told him, I said, you know, I, we need, we need you to stay in business for us to stay in business. If, if, if you go out of business, we're in trouble. So in a way, having the big farms around us is important because those big farms support those, um, those operations. So we can get, um, you know, we can, we can get the supplies that we need to, to run our operation without having to shop on Amazon for anything, everything or stuff like that. Silver lining story. There's a few people that do what, what we do. And you probably know of white Oak pastures down in Bluffton, Georgia. Um, Will Harris, the owner of that farm is just a phenomenal, just a phenomenal businessman to the point where they've, um, he's in a very rural area uh, down there and he's grown his farm doing these regenerative practices. He's built his own slaughterhouse on his farm. He's bought up 15 or 20 of the houses in the town <clears throat> to put employees into. They're start, he's actually starting to turn this town into a place where people want to live again. So um, it's, it, it's, it's cool to see that um, I'm, I'm glad we're not starting this 25 years ago when no one was doing it and no one knew how to do it. At least we can, we can learn from some of these people that have, you know, that have been doing it for a little while. Yeah. That, it's, it's great to hear that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've heard you talking before about, you know, um, this concept of farm to table restaurants eating and, and really it sounds like the, that is sort of the beginning of the true farm to table, which is you have everything in one place, right? And there are a right couple there. restaurants in the country that are doing that. But mm-hmm. uh, other, other than that, you don't really know. Farm to table is another one of those uh, amb- ambiguous terms, right? It sure is. Yeah. We would love to have a little restaurant right here on the farm. And we've talked about it before that, uh, like, how would we do it? And how would we start it? And who the hell has time to do it? But um, it would be a, I mean, that's the dream, right? Is to have, to, to raise, that's the true farm to table is, is to have everything raised right on the property where the, where the restaurant is, because, you know, most farm to table is just, you know, they, they, you know, most of the stuff's off the Cisco truck, but they get, you know, they get a dozen eggs from, uh, from, from, you know, someone's kid in 4-H and they. (laughs) Well, and it's, it's, it's a hard term because I suppose if you're eating a vegetable or, or, you know, an animal, it was at some point raised on some sort of a farm, right? We're and all farms. Yeah. Into yep. your table. So, uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging thing. It's, it's, it's marketing more than anything, I'm sure. But yeah, uh, yep. let, you know, uh, let, we'll, we'll start wrapping up here, but what, what are some, you know, if you had to pinpoint one or two issues facing s- small farms today, what, what are they? What, what are the, what are the things that, 
make you think, uh, you know, make you worried about future generations of small farms? And what are the things you're optimistic about? Land cost is, land cost is, is tough. Getting into farming and, and um, or even just being a farmer and needing to expand a little bit, purchasing land is, is just, not only is, ex- is expensive, but it's also, um, it's almost impossible to find. Most farmland sales are not, they don't hit the real estate market. You know, they get sold word of mouth to another farmer. And um, so getting land is, 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 is probably the biggest challenge. Uh, equal to that, then, is paying the taxes on that land. And, and, and in New York State, it, the, the, the taxes are pretty high. Uh, there are some breaks for farmers, but it's not that significant. Um, uh, and then getting a labor force, finding people who want to work. I mean, I feel like we have a fantastic place to work right here, but it's hard work. We're, we're moving. And, and uh, that's how things have to, to operate in a, in a system like we have. Um, the other thing is, is access to equipment. There's, I think there's potential for farms to work together to, to share equipment and work together to use that equipment. And, and that's how the sort of labor and the equipment problem solve, they solve themselves. Uh, collaboration sounds like a, like a good plan to kind of get ride shares. Yeah. Tractor ride shares. Yeah. And I'm sure, and, and look, to some degree, technology will, will, will make that easier as time goes on. I would imagine. It you sure know, will. To yeah. the extent that the industry is willing to, you know, to move in those direct in that direction. And I'm sure there's resistance like there is in any other industry, but just one last point, but there is, there is an industry movement and I would like everybody to be aware of this. Um, and, uh, I believe you can even around here, um, we would, and I've done it, written a letter to, um, our uh, representative, uh, Ms. Stefanik about the, um, USDA is a hundred percent. Okay. With grass fed beef being imported from another country and being stamped as product of USA. And we would like that. We would really like for that to stop. Um, that would be something that um, that it would be nice if if uh, people would make more noise about that if they're buying grass fed beef in a grocery store and it says it's from the United States that it, it was at least from the United States. I don't think that's too much to ask. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because it brings it full circle to uh, to the beginning of the conversation about you know language being mis- potentially misleading. And uh, I've heard you talk about that before. I was completely unaware of that as a as a possibility. And to be honest, I don't even know where I would find that find that if you hadn't mentioned it. So um, I think that's, you know, a good place for, for people to think about and be aware of. Um, before we wrap here, where, where can people find you and your farm uh, and see all kinds of pictures of Nellie and the kids doing the good work? Uh, for, for everyone listening, Eric's, uh, Slate, Eric and Slate River's Instagram uh, account is, is very picturesque. <laughs> So, you know, thank you. That's where, that's where you can find us on, uh, on Instagram. Uh, that's, uh, we have a presence there. We have our website, slate river farms, ny.com. And, um, or you can just Google slate river farms and it'll take you there. And we have our online store there. And for Saratoga Springs residents, we do deliveries every Monday. Nellie has a, has a route. And, um, I believe right now she is uh, taking on new, 
egg customers. Our eggs are, are always in high demand. And uh, we're at a point now where she thinks she can take on a few more egg customers for weekly delivery. I know, Scott, you've been a long time uh, weekly egg customer. So every week, the eggs just show up at your doorstep. Yeah. And a, and a plug to Slate River. My, my daughter, Lila, will, is a very, very picky eater. Uh, and uh, up until about two months ago, would, would rarely eat anything for breakfast and has somehow at some point decided that she loves a Slate River Farm egg. And so every morning I make her uh, a fried egg and I make our dog, our bulldog Walter, a fried egg. And then I make an omelet. So we're, we're really burning through the Slate River Farms. That's great. Keep it up. Yeah, you should yeah. get more dogs. <laughs> um, and are you, guys, are you guys still at farmer's markets or is that? Uh, we, we are not at any farmer's markets. So yeah, we do the, um, um, people can come to the farm to pick up if you want to see the farm. Uh, uh, you can do that. And then for folks that are outside of the, you know, sort of local delivery uh, route, we do FedEx shipping um, on a, uh, basically anywhere in New York state and New England down to, um, South Jersey. It's a pretty big area that we, uh, we do one day shipping to. So that's great. Uh, I can't recommend your stuff enough, Eric. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been very educational and, uh, this has been great. I'm glad you guys are doing this podcast. It's, um, I would listen to the first one today that you and uh, Giovanna recorded and it was, uh, it was, it was great. I look forward to more. Excellent. Thanks.